Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with many torrents of oil? Should I give my oldest child for my crime, the fruit of my body for the sin of my spirit? God has told you, human one, what is good and what the Lord requires from you, to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. This is the word in black and red. Hello, and welcome to The Word in Black and Red, where we read the Bible from a leftist and liberationist perspective to elucidate the way people of faith and their comrades can understand the Bible as a source of healing, love, and liberation for all people. I'm your host, Micah Belong, the Wise Old Lama MB, joined today by my wonderful guests. First off, we have Don. Don is a pastor in Japan who is up at 10.30 in the morning, bright and early, tomorrow to come and speak to us today. Don, will you tell us a little bit more about what you're doing and how you came to uh, where you stand now? I'm Don. I am a pastor with the Reformed Church in America. I am the pastor of Unfinished Community, which is a experimental kind of church plant. I'm based here in Japan, uh, but our church kind of started on discord so most of our members are scattered around the planet anyway so um i spend as much time doing podcasts and video series and all that other stuff as i do actually pastoring in the traditional sense for the sake of background so you all know that i know what i'm talking about when we start talking about things bachelor's in arts in japanese master's in education from temple master's in divinity from princeton theological seminary and ordained minister of word and sacrament in the reformed church in america for all that's worth (laughs) Also, I am sort of person who believes in the the necessity of an irreverent approach to scripture. I believe that we should have fun with it. I believe that we should be dropping F-bombs left and right. And I believe we should be just being crazy and understanding what we're talking about and realizing that if we're made in God's image, then damn it, God's got a sense of humor too. I, I love that. I have to remind people often that Jesus cussed out a fig tree so badly, it withered up and died. So if Jesus can cuss, so can I. One of my favorite arguments is the fact that when Jesus was literally hanging on the cross, he starts spouting off with, uh, with Psalms. And the way that you cursed in, in ancient Hebrew and Aramaic was basically to scream oaths or prayers or Psalms. So technically, depending on how you want to observe the context of the time, the last words of Jesus Christ could just be translated as one giant (laughs) F-bomb. Excellent. And my friend Snorkel is an amateur archaeologist. Uh, Not so amateur, really. Been studying this for 10 years. Snorkel, will you tell us a little bit more about yourself? So I started studying it, um, archaeology, in college and just got more and more interested in specifically Egyptology and the ancient Near East pre-pottery, Neolithic to be exact, but that's boring to most people, but not for this podcast. So I'm really excited to be here. I started deconstructing my faith about five-ish years ago after growing up uh, in a pretty strict and fundamentalist upbringing. Um, And just this podcast seems really cool and I'm really eager to get to connect with all of you and explore deeper into the Word of God and what it means. We record these things out of order, and so Snorkel has already recorded the Flood episode with us, which you should look forward to. It is an awesome dive into a lot of really good things that we will be talking about here as well. And now we have Soul. Soul is a self-described Quaker with a math tattoo. So, (laughs) Soul, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, so I'm Soul. I was raised Southern Baptist, and I was 
pretty good at it until I realized I was queer. You know how it goes. Now I'm a Quaker. So how would you describe your political tendency and how did you come to that? So I am the scaremongering that your parents believe all colleges are. My freshman year of university was the fall of 2016. So if you'll remember, that's when Trump was elected. And the honors college at my university was basically like 50% queer. And so everyone was like really broken up about it. The dean of the honors college sent out an email that was like, hey, I know a bunch of people are like really upset. I'm going to be offering a political theory course in the spring. And so I took that. His doctorate is in like queer political theory. And so like literally I went into college cis and straight as far as my parents knew, had a Marxist professor teach me queer theory. And I came out literally with blue hair and pronouns like it literally happens like that. So my political leanings are like, I have a grounding in Marxism, but I'm more of like a left anarchist. When I started this podcast, I did not intend for every one of our co-hosts and my editor to be uh, an anarchist. I thought that I was going to be the lone anarchist on this and I was going to have a bunch of communists and we've ended up being (laughs) mostly anarchists, which is wonderful. Uh, But we are very, very open to having some communists on and coming to uh, to participate with us. Well, I also, I, I read the Bible and became a leftist. So let's read the Bible and become better leftists. Genesis 2, 4b through 24. On the day the Lord God made earth and sky, Before any wild plants appeared on the earth, and before any field crops grew, because the Lord God hadn't yet sent rain on the earth, and there was still no human being to farm the fertile land. Though a stream rose from the earth and watered all of the fertile land, the Lord God formed a human from the topsoil of the fertile land and blew life's breath into their nostrils. The human came to life. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and put there the human God had formed. In the fertile land, the Lord God grew every beautiful tree with edible fruit, and also God grew the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flows from Eden to water the garden, and from there it divides into four headwaters. The name of the first river is the Pishon. It flows around the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. That land's gold is pure, and the land also has sweet-smelling resins and gemstones. The land of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, flowing east of Assyria, and the name of the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the human and settled them in the Garden of Eden to farm it and to take care of it. The Lord God commanded the human, Eat your fill from all of the garden's trees, but don't eat it from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day you eat from it, you will die. Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the human is alone. I will make them a helper that is perfect for them. So the Lord God formed from the fertile land all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky and brought them to the human to see what they would name them. The human gave each living being its name. The human named all the livestock, all the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But a helper perfect for them was nowhere to be found. So the Lord God put the human into a deep and heavy sleep and took one of their ribs and closed up the flesh over it. With the rib taken from the human, the Lord God fashioned a woman and brought her to the human being. The human said, This one finally is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She will be called a woman, because from a man she was taken. 
This is the reason that a man leaves his father and mother and embraces his wife, and they become one flesh. Longtime listeners will note that this story is a little bit different from the previous story. The previous story of creation is one in which things happen in a specific order for a specific reason. And we talked last episode about the ways that these are referencing different literary traditions in the ancient Near East. And this second story is also chock full of those literary references. Don, would you mind telling me a little bit more about Robert Alter's notes here that talk about all of those connections going on? Well, I've got, like I said in front of me, I've got Robert Alter's uh, translation, which if you're not familiar with that, he's a, a Old Testament Hebrew scholar, uh, actually a Jewish scholar, if I'm not mistaken, uh, who has done his own translation of the Old Testament that has got just rave reviews throughout academia. And he's focused specifically on resetting the text in English in a way that respects the literary poetics of the original Hebrew, because that is something we don't talk about a whole lot when we read the Bible, particularly those of us who grew up in like right-wing conservative or evangelicals. We're like, oh, it's the Bible. No, it's meant to be poetic and sound good. And honestly, I, like I'm a big NRSV stand, but even that sounds stilted in a lot of places because, and I cannot stress this enough for anybody who's reading the Bible, is that this thing has been subject to a game of intergenerational bigoted telephone for 2,000 years plus, and does not necessarily make sense even <laughs> at all in English. So going back to it's absolutely ne uh, necessary. So comparing to the first creation story is, first off, not a thing we really need to do because as anyone who's done basic biblical studies will tell you, they're different stories by different authors. They're meant to present different perspectives for reasons not dissimilar to the reason that we have four Gospels. Multiple perspectives are important, and the damn thing's not a history textbook. It's a moral education poetics book meant to share our collective cultural history, not objective fact. So with that said, like there are a lot of things in this second creation story that are meant through the poetic expression to make kind of interesting points. And I'm sure we'll touch on a lot of these throughout the, the story as well. But as far as comparing to the two creation stories, they're not worth comparing. There's no point in comparing them. The author of the of the first story, and I know we've got JSP or, or JDP, I forget which it is. I know I've been to seminary. I should know this, but I, I keep forgetting it. Regardless, the author of the first one uh, is more focused on God as a transcendent entity responsible for creation in an unknowable way. Whereas the author of the second creation story is focused on the relational God who, like, you literally see anthropomorphized in the second one, walking through the garden, uh, doing stuff, and at one point not knowing where the monkeys he made are. I say he for convenience there, by the way. We all know that God doesn't have a gender. Suffice it to say, they're the two different, very, very different takes on God, and that's okay because from a Christian perspective, again, I'm a Christian pastor trying in on this. That's going to be my thing. God is definitively infinite, multi-aspected and unknowable, transcendent, trans-temporal, like wormhole aliens from Deep Space Nine and then some. So there's no way in God's multifaceted creation we're going to be able to understand that. So God has multiple aspects. Both of them can be the same being, and it's fine. It's fine. It's okay. We don't need to fight over it. 
Absolutely. And, you know, we're talking about these two different, uh, these two different beings and these two different stories, because in the ancient Israel religion, these were two different gods, right? There was El, and then there was Yahweh. And I only say the name Yahweh, because it is not the same as the holy name of God that it becomes later on in the Jewish tradition. Um, and so, you know, we have these two different stories that are telling the stories of two different religious creation stories. I will say it is it's worth noting that even in Jewish scholasticism, there is some debate over that premise as to whether there were two gods or two facets of the same God. I'm of the school of thought with a lot of Jewish scholars and a lot of Christian scholars who hold that there they never it never was conceived of as two gods. It was just two takes on the same God. So for fairness's sake, I think it's worth noticing that that is something that has two different perspectives on it. Oh yeah, absolutely. I I prefer the idea that they were different gods that then became one, specifically because I think that Asherah, uh, the female goddess who might have been Yahweh's consort, eventually merged with Yahweh. And so it is literally a combination of all of these gender expressions being made into one being. So I like that interpretation better. I think there's good evidence for both sides, but there is a debate on it. It's also worth noting too that even Jewish mysticism holds that God as multifaceted has the Shekhinah, which is a, a divine feminine form. There are like, and we'll we'll get into this later on too, the fact that the primordial Adam did not have a definitive gender and was considered to be both male and female in the fullness of essence. So like the whole of Genesis one and two is telling us uh when it comes to God and when it comes to humans, gender is BS, so don't bother. The only sexual organ that God has ever described with is a womb in Job, and that mm-hmm. is taken in the uh, Jewish mystic text, the Talmud especially, to be the Zimzium, the womb of God that we are currently in. We are in the process of being gestated by God into the thing that we are supposed to be born into, and that current creation is in that seventh day of shalom, of that seventh day of Sabbath rest, and we are yet to be born. We are yet to be born into what we're supposed to be. You know, this is a creation story, but it's also all tied up in all of these other ideas that we are still being created and still being made in these wonderful things. One one last note to that, and I think it's worth noting from a literary perspective too, that each of these different perspectives have their origins in different places. Like, for example, I, I'm a reformed, I'm a Dutch reformed Protestant, so I'm big on the whole sola scriptura. If it's not in the Bible, then it's secondary. That's my perspective, but other people have different. So the, the Jewish, for example, have the Midrash, which provides a lot of theological background. The Catholics have their own doctrinal perspective that provides an entirely different set of background. Um, so a lot of these different perspectives come from very different traditional takes on the text. And when it comes to God, I think it's really important for us to acknowledge the unknowability rather than to assume that any one perspective or any combination of perspectives is likely to be correct. That's also why we should have pan-leftist unity, right? We don't have a definitive proof of of which of our theories are going to work. And as long as we're working together to tear down oppressive systems— why are we getting in the way? You know, if, if somebody wants to shoot me after the revolution because I didn't have the right uh, thoughts on Trotsky, feel free. But until we get there, let's work together, please. So you noted that the first thing that is not right with this story of creation is that it is not good for the human being to be alone. Could you tell me a little bit more about that thought? Obviously, um, as Don was saying, like they are different stories, but it, it is interesting that they ended up in this order where, you know, we have so many things that we see and it was good and it was good and it was very good. And the first thing that's not good, if we're just reading it sequentially, 
is this loneliness. And I especially think about that with respect to, obviously, like, the church's homophobia. And obviously, you know, whenever we do get further on in the story, the other human is a woman. But it it doesn't seem like that's actually like the crux of it. It's not that the other human is a woman. It's that the other human is on some level, on the same level as the human, whether you look at, like, just the rib bone or I think we're going to talk later about more of it being, like, a splitting. Regardless of whether it's one or the other, the humans are are the same type of thing, and that's what's important. And the idea that then um you get like side b people who will say sure we don't hate you for being gay but you should be alone forever that is clearly like not what god designed us for well and i think that what makes me so happy to be a minister to queer folks is and to be a queer person experiencing this is that queer relationships are holy in a way that that other relationships are also holy, right? Uh, straight relationships are also holy. But queer relationships specifically have this extra added holiness because they are difficult, because the world has hated us, because the world has said we are left on the outside. And and so we have to cling to each other uh, more fully and, and, and tighter, right? And that's the kind of the loneliness that the first human is experiencing here, that they're all alone and they don't have anyone else. They look out and they see themselves. They see all of these other creatures that are different from them. And, and, you know, they're also, uh, they're also walking around. They're also eating things. You know, they, they have a lot of similarities, but you feel alone when you're the only one of your kind, right? You feel alone when you're the only queer kid at school. You feel alone when you're the only leftist in your town. You feel alone when you have all of these things. And we need each other. We need community. We need to be called to each other in these beautiful ways. And I think that for queer folks specifically, because we go out searching for each other, because we go out and find our families that we choose to cling to, and we have to cling to as a means of survival, that kind of relationship display something holy about the ways that God clings onto us. In this first story, that God clings onto humanity so much and realizes that God isn't enough, right? The relationship with God is not sufficient for what the human needs. The human also needs other humans. So I think that's an absolutely beautiful point. Also, um, something that I dwell on a lot, actually, is this idea that, like, why did God make humans in the first place, right? And I'm not formally educated enough to call this anything other than a headcanon. Imagine that God was lonely, right? And so we have this parallel of, like, God being lonely and made the human, and the human wasn't satisfied until there were other humans, until there were other things like the human, but we never see an analogous uh, disquiet with God like the humans had with the other animals, right? And so we get that sense of, like, God is satisfied with humanity, and we are something like God as well. Absolutely. And, you know, God is lonely, I think. That might be the way, but I like to think of it as God created the earth out of pure joy, that God wanted something to be joyous in. 
Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, writes this really interesting defense of the existence of God and says, the existence of the clitoris is proof that there is a good God because there exists something that is that serves no biological function. It is simply for the joy of people who have them uh, to use them in sex. And so I love, I love the idea that God has created us for God's own joy and God has given us many reasons to be joyful in itself. As a side note, I, I once got kicked out of a religious philosophy class at my conservative Christian undergrad for making that exact argument. So I have a certain uh, appreciation in my heart for it. The, the other point I was going to that I was going to bring up is like we talk about the idea of, of like God is lonely and things like that. It, we tend to orient ourselves with this idea of imagio dei, that, that humankind is made in the image of God. And I think that word image is really key to how we understand this. Uh, when we look at that, we tend to think that we were made to be like God and therefore should try to be as much like God as possible, which, you know, in a moral and ethical sense is true. However, it's worth noting that God did not create a copy. And I think this is a point we tend to slip past a lot when we're discussing the creation. We were not created to be the same as God. We were created to be a different thing, to develop and function in different ways. The way I've always explained to it, uh, or the way I've always explained it, is that God is transtemporal. God is not subject to temporal causality in the way that we are. We're meant to be coming together and coming apart and merging like a temporal lava lamp, for lack of a better term. That's not a characteristic that is exactly the same with God, because God is eternal and possesses all things. God is the living idic, uh, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. And no, I will not stop making Star Trek jokes. Thank you very much. But we, on the other hand, are meant to be constantly changing and constantly different. So the recognition that it is not good for Adama, the man, uh, as we sometimes translate it, but really just the human, uh, to be alone is a recognition that the initially created human was not necessarily stagnant, but definitely unchanging in a way that did not suit the mutation of creation that was designed to be. Listener, you can't hear me going mm, the whole time because I'm on mute. But yes, yes, I'm I'm sitting there listening actively. That's a beautiful point, and I think that that clinging to each other really brings up this point that Snorkel was pointing out to us earlier. That this last verse of this passage that often gets brought up just just to be homophobic, um, but in really bad ethics of marriage is the, this is the reason that a man leaves his father and mother and embraces his wife and they become one flesh. Snorkel points out that this seems to be uh, something that humans are pointing back to as this collective memory of matriarchy. Snorkel, could you talk more about the role of matriarchy in ancient societies? Matriarchy may or may not be the oldest gender-based system in human history. There's no way we're ever going to know for sure. But it is one that tends to be a whole lot older than patriarchy. And the reason we can know this is because most of the uh, most ancient artifacts created by humans and ancient human precursors revolves around the female body, the, the traditionally female body. You have, the, of course, the Venus figurines that if you've ever done any kind of cursory investigation or watched anything on YouTube about prehistory, all these figurines of very pregnant, very fertility-oriented carvings that are among the earliest human representations 
self-representations. Um, and it tends to do with the the female form and pregnant people. Uh, these figurines, we don't know exactly what their purpose is, whether it is supposed to be some kind of fertility ritual, some kind of talisman to uh, promote a healthy pregnancy and childbirth, something to, uh, it might be some kind of self-portrait or pornographic materials. So we're never going to know that completely, uh, but it features extremely prominently throughout a large geographic region that we can safely say is not something just localized to one particular belief system. It seems to be really enmeshed in ancient humanity's view of themselves. You also have male representations, of course, but the focus seems to be on the, the reproductive fertility side of pregnancy and childbirth. And along with that, some of the earliest representations we see of keeping time seem to be corresponding to the menstrual cycle and lunar cycles. You find pieces of bone or antler where they are marked seemingly according to a lunar cycle, but not exactly. The ongoing hypothesis is that it's for ancient people to mark their menstrual cycles um, because they recognize that that was somehow vital to the creation of new life. That being said, the whole idea that, and again, when you say man and woman, this isn't meant to be a completely literal, this is how marriage is supposed to work. But for all intents and purposes, as far as ancient people understood it, the idea that the man leaves his own tribe or family and goes to join his mate and they create new life together, that seems to designate a more matrilineal descent. And I think, Micah, it was either you were Pastor Don who was talking about how the uh, Jewish people originally kept track through matrilineal lineages. And I just think that's really interesting. The, the very earliest mention of how marriage works makes it seem more matrilineal because in a, a pre-DNA uh, CSI society, how else are you supposed to be completely sure of somebody's lineage? You track it through the birth-giving person, the person who you can be sure was pregnant, who for sure birthed this new human. And it can be impossible to tell who else was involved in that process. And I feel like patriarchy comes as a part of trying to control that process and be more certain of it for greedy or selfish means. I'm going to take the, archeo the archaeology and I'm going to piggyback on that and add a little theology as a, as a nice little sprinkle on top here. It's worth noting, because you look at the, the initial creation of, of Adama as the human, and the first question I remember asking when I was a kid reading this in Sunday school was, okay, if God started out this way, where are more humans going to come from? There isn't a reproductive component to that unless we assume that, you know, primordial Adam was meant to reproduce by mitosis. So then we get the creation of, of woman. And as a side note, I really want to stress this point in both uh, chapter one and chapter two that we see the creation of binary states as a primary literary uh, means of expression, but it does not rule out the existence of non-binary states. Uh, one of the best examples I've ever seen of this is God creates the light and the darkness and separates the day from the night, does not discourage the existence of twilight, sunrise, sunset, and all of these other binary conditions. And that was always a component of ancient Jewish theology. Anyway, that point being said, one of the primary themes theologically that we get throughout the Bible is the inclusion of humanity in the creative act. And I think it's very important to realize that when we're comparing patriarchal and matriarchal or patrilineal and matrilineal systems here, 
that uh, a patriarchal system tends to view humanity as recipients of the creative act and matrilineal systems tend to view humanity as participants in the creative act. So if you ever want to ask which one is more connected to at least a Christian theology, if not an outright Judeo-Christian theology, it's always going to be matriarchal because the act of humanity participating in creation is hard-coded into our theological DNA. Absolutely. I mean, you know, if we just look at the the concept of the Eucharist, right, that we receive, now we have different traditions of the Eucharist, obviously, within Christianity, but what is happening is that God has given us grain and grapes, and we turn those into bread and wine, and then we give them back to God, and God gives them back to us with something added on top, right? There's that that process of co-creation that happens. And one of the things that I love combining what Soul was just saying with Snorkel is the fact that as we see this goodness growing throughout these stories, if we take it as one story, we see what is the pinnacle of creation the creation of woman, the creation of the the childbearer, the creation of the life giver, the creation of the co-creator with God of the humanity that is about to be created and blossoming. And I'm going to piggyback on that one more time because I'm that kind of guy and I apologize. I'm going to skip ahead slightly because we go all the way to verse 23. Uh, after that moment of creation has happened, and we get this one at last, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, this one shall be called woman, for from man this one was taken. And what, what I love about this, and this I'm taking from Alter's notes here, is this is the first recorded instance of human speech, and it's joyous over the creation of woman, and it is poetry. You can even still see this in the the non-alter English translations as well that have it set aside the same way you would like the text in a psalm or something like that. It's meant to be joyous and poetic in the in the immersion of 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 woman and that celebration of life like that. And I think that's a really important place for us to start out is that the very first time the human being speaks is to celebrate with music and poetry the arrival of woman. I just I also wanted to piggyback off of that and just say that I know it's in the text, it has masculine and feminine, it's listed as man and woman. The Ezerkinegdo, meaning the helper against or the counterpart, doesn't necessarily mean female versus male or feminine versus masculine, just the opposite, the binary. And it's the completion of everything to where, um, and like you said too, that humanity can now be co-creators alongside God, that that's truly the image of God is someone being able to co-create. And it takes more than one person to do that. And it takes that kind of communion and community. I'll continue being the geek because it seems like we've got a good piggybacking chain going on here. And you know, like a conga line of theology, I'm going to just keep the party going. I'm I'm eager to dive into Isaiah Conegdo right off the bat, but I think it's also good for us to know that when we talk about just linguistically, without getting into a full linguistics history, uh, English is a screwed up garbage language made out of, you know, basically the like Middle Ages equivalent of Ferengi arguing over doc stuff. It's ridiculous. And the 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 hard-coded gender roles that we have in English aren't a universal. Uh, Hebrew has gendered pronouns to an extent, uh, but they're meant to be almost metaphorical at times. 
Uh, and not necessarily like this definitely means a guy who fits an American modern traditional gender role for male. So that's right out the window as it stands. And then when we get to Ezerkenegdo, I absolutely love this part, particularly because of what I'm getting from Alter's notes here, that the, the simple idea of this, like, we, oh, my God, we translate this so terribly so many different ways. And it's the, the suggestion in this that she is meant to be submissive and supportive and cute little, like, stereotypical, you know, wife is stupid. Like, it's it's unequivocally, linguistically dumb. And Alter's notes, I love, really drives the point. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this verbatim from the notes here because I think it's worth mentioning. The Hebrew Ezer Kenegdo, which in King James has helped me, is notoriously difficult to translate. The second term means alongside or opposite him, or as a counterpart to him. And I'm putting him in quotes here. But help is too weak because it suggests a merely auxiliary function, whereas Ezer elsewhere in the Bible. Uh, connotes active intervention on behalf of someone, especially in military contexts, as we see in the Psalms. So, like, the idea that woman was created to be this, like, submissive helpmeet is ridiculous because the language they're using here is like, no, she was meant to be his frickin' general. And I think that there is, I think that that Psalm that uh, cries out, uh, you are my fortress, you are my strong tower, it has this same sort of language that Azair is there, that God is to be the right hand, right? Is to be the one who fights alongside. Another way of putting it is Azair also comes up in the story of David and Jonathan, the famous gay lovers of the Old Testament, um, who we are definitely going to be talking about later on. And they are said to be Azair to each other, right? They are the people who have each other's backs in these really powerful ways. And so, and, and when we read this story, Eve is in no way the submissive one in this relationship. Eve is the leader and Adam follows. <laughs> and so, and we'll talk about that more next time. But I think it's so interesting, everything that you're saying there is that this this is meant to be a tool that allows each other to grow, literally, right? Is that we have these two different parts that are meant to work together to be able to continue the human race, to allow humanity to grow and expand and, and develop beyond just these two people in the garden, right? And you need those opposite things. You need a diversity. You need a multiplicity of perspectives and people and personalities to be able to bring these things together. We are only going to solve our problems because of solidarity with each other, because we choose to cling to each other, not because any one of us can do it alone. The way that uh, that we get this helper, this helpmate, this side general, this whatever you want to call it, is super interesting here in the original story. Now, there are a couple different interpretations. In There is a traditional midrash that the original first human, the Adam, contained within themselves all of the gender expressions that find themselves out in uh, the Jewish tradition. There are six different genders within the Jewish tradition. The two that we're talking about here are male and female, the sexual components there, but all six of those, minimum, are to be found in this first person Adam, right? And like Don was saying earlier, that this idea that the rib bone is taken is literally you're taking out the part of the body that is the top half, right? You're ripping humanity in half and out of that creating two new human beings. Now that's one really good story, right? That's one really good interpretation. Another really good interpretation is let's look and see what is a rib bone. Now, Hebrew is a notoriously euphemistic language. 
when you see the story of Ruth and Boaz in the book of Ruth, you don't hear talk about the fact that Ruth slept with Boaz, right? You say that Ruth slept at Boaz's feet, right? And that is a euphemism to say that they slept together. Now, here in this story, rib bone, go ahead and count your ribs, gentlemen. You still got six of them? I grew up thinking men had five ribs and women had six. <laughs> but no, we're not missing that rib bone. But what bone do most mammals have that human beings don't have? There's one, and that is the penile bone. The penile bone that human beings don't have, this is a story to account for that. Just like there's a later story to account for why snakes are the only critters that get around without legs, this is a story to explain why humans don't have penile bones while most other mammals do, something that ancient hunter-gatherer societies would have known intimately when they were skidding off and taking care of, of these bodies as they go. So there are those two different stories, right? It's an uh, it's what's called an etiological story. It's an explanation of how things came to be, right? What are some of those myths in our own society? How did all these people get out of poverty? Well, our ideological myth is that capitalism got these people out of poverty. If we actually went back and evaluated the history, we'd find actually capitalism continuously places people more into, into poverty, and it's only intervention that causes people to actually be lifted out of poverty. And the only way that you get to say that capitalism has lifted out more people in poverty in the 20th century is if you account for China being a capitalist country. So capitalists either have to say our worst, most evil communist enemy are actually capitalists, or you have to say capitalism doesn't solve the problem. But I digress. I really only wanted to have this episode so I could talk about penis bones and human beings. But we also have uh, a much more interesting discussion that talking about that original distinction, that original Madrash, that the birth of humanity comes by the separation of the one human into multiple of them. Uh, so would you mind talking more about that separation of the one human into these two new humans? From what I am aware of, the, the word that we translate to rib is side, but it's side in the same way that there is a side of a mountain. And so we can understand it more like a splitting of like being cleft in twain. The the way, you know, the Southern Baptists explained it to me was uh, they like took a rib out and then God like basically made a whole nother human just out of that like foot of tissue no, they're more like basically just two halves. That That's really compelling to me. I was going to ask if anyone else had heard the overly cutesy, cheesy saying about how, oh, God didn't create Eve from Adam's head to rule over him or his feet to be stomped on by him, but from his ribs so that she'd be at his side and under his arm and close to his heart. I'm gagging. Yeah, it's so bad. It is. I remember puking when I was like nine and heard that. It was just so cheese factory for that. I, I like what you said a whole lot better, Sol. You could say that that God didn't create a woman out of his head or from his heart, but out of his dick so that you could always have him by the balls. <laughs> Listeners, you cannot see uh, Micah raffling right now, but it's so important that you know that that is what's happening. It, it's a real raffle moment. There are tears. <laughs> I was going to say, though, 
I went ahead and uh, got the Hebrew open in front of me anyway, just to, to double check what we're talking about when it comes to uh, dick bones and the like. And being aware of, of ancient Hebrews' love of euphemistic expressions, uh, I'm going to go ahead and read you the the outline of, of biblical usage and some of the, the commentary from Strong's uh, dictionary here on the word tzela, which is the word that's used as rib here. Uh, first off, it's feminine. Um, the word itself is feminine, uh, comes from a different word, uh, uh, a rib curved in an architectural sense, uh, like part of a door, uh, side, yada, yada, yada. And then it goes architecturally, especially a timber, a plank, flooring beam, or board, or anything long and hard. Ah, basically, the rib is long piece of hard wood. Okay. Let's talk a little bit more about that <laughs> that interpretation that Snorkel just brought up. That is a super common interpretation, uh, unfortunately, in the church. And it is a good reason for us to resist the church when it imposes this. You know, here we see in this original story that humanity is created equal. They are created of one flesh. They are meant to be partners in this. And instead, we see patriarchy arise. It is our duty to dismantle the patriarchy, and I know a lot of this will probably fit better with the next episode about uh, Genesis 3. However, something that I just want to point out that is really starkly missing from this chapter is the establishment of the patriarchy. Nowhere here does God instruct any one gender or sex or anybody to be subservient to anybody else, with the exception of humanity being subservient to God, their creator. You will not find anything in the original story about women being submissive to men or having to be subservient or quiet or anything like that. And in our previous point, we talked about about the Ezra Konegdo, the militaristic term of helper, warrior, iron sharpening, iron counterpart, doesn't really fit this idea of the, you know, gross little submissive next to his heart little cute thing. I hear a lot, and this, maybe I have a little bit of a chip on my shoulder because of my upbringing, but I've heard for so many years about how, you know, women are just the weaker sex and meant to be subservient to men, to be protected by men that we somehow not less than, I, I really feel like it's the whole separate but equal clause. I've even heard those words used. You know, I'm not trying to take away from any kind of discussion about racial justice, but it's it's a thing that needs to be addressed. The idea of separate but equal between men and women and this quote-unquote benevolent misogyny. And it just simply doesn't exist. Even looking at the source material, we'll, we'll get into this later, but the idea of patriarchy is not part of God's original design. And I think that's very telling that so many people ignore that part where this is something that's drastically missing from the creation story and if that was truly how god intended it to be don't you think god would have told us somehow would it not have been important enough to include in the foundational story of humanity and how integral it really is if indeed it was integral and the fact that it's missing it, it's conspicuous in its absence and the way that conservative readers of this text try to contort the text, not even conservative, radical reactionary readers of this text, read this text and try to twist it to say, oh, well, Adam was created first, so clearly God 
preferred Adam and Adam was more important. Well, no. Uh, first off, Adam doesn't have a gender when Adam is created. Adam contains all of them. And then the fact is that in the rest of the creation story, when you pointed there, you said humanity was the most important thing because they were created last. So if that's the logic we're going for, women are more important than men because women were created last. <laughs> so, you know, there there is no real logic to this radical reactionary reading, except to say, I want women to be oppressed. I like the patriarchy, and so I'm going to be upholding it. I'm going to carry over from that. Um, and, and I'm going to say that, first off, not only is it not presented in, in this text, and you know, you'd think it would be if it were important, it's also worth noting that there is a theme that runs through definitely Genesis, if not most of the entire Bible. And, um, you know, shameless plug, my own church has our own biblical deconstruction podcast that we're doing, and we're some 40 episodes in, and we're already past Abraham and Abimelech, and we're into Isaac and Jacob and all that down the line. And the theme that has been coming back to us again and again and again is basically this. Man decides he should be powerful, takes power, does hilarious sequence of fuck-ups left and right, doing terrible and terrible things, only for God to pull them back out and say, no, no, just no, 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 stop it, no. Like, the entire story of the early Bible, hell, the whole Bible, is constructed series of power, constructed systems of power and authority made by humankind, immediately being proven to be terrible ideas. The entire line of biblical kingship was a reaction to God saying, you don't need kings, and man saying, yes, we do, and then everything goes wrong. Like, And it's the same with patriarchy. It's God establishes an order here that has, if not female supremacy, then definitively female equality. Like, there is neither a matriarchal nor patriarchal system established here. And the men are immediately like, well, I know what I'm going to do with this. And everything goes wrong. Like, this is a theme we're going to come back to through the whole Bible. Humankind makes system. God laughs. Man screws up terribly. And I say man there intentionally. And then things get corrected. And then we start the whole cycle again until we eventually figure it out, which is the part of the Bible I'm waiting for. So? Yeah. And I'm going to just plug this in uh, preparation for my Genesis 3 take, which is that we as readers and probably like the writers from a certain perspective had a presumption of like humans being under God, but we don't actually like see that in the text, right? We see the Lord God commanded the human uh, eat your fill from the garden of the trees, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because on the day you eat from it, you will die, right? But that doesn't necessitate a hierarchy. And in fact, like I've I've thought about it before, like, you know, and again, we're we're bleeding over into the next episode. But like it, you go over to a friend's house and they're like, hey, don't eat the pizza in the fridge because it's like two weeks old. Just like don't do it. And then you do it and then you fucking hide from them. That's weird, right? Like that's that's not the way you act. And so like we don't have to read a hierarchy into this situation yet. And I think that has really interesting implications whenever we get to Genesis 3. 
and 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 I'm I'm right there with you. That's the point that I want to make here is that within this creation, we see an equality of all beings, right? God is not above the human. God is watching out for the human and saying, hey, this is a tree that you don't want to eat from, right? It's the it's the two-week-old pizza, right? And then the animals are brought out, and all of them are evaluated as potential helpers to humanity. It is not that some of them are below humanity and some of them are above humanity. It's that they're all considered potential allies. And we just watched our editor, Ephemeral's dog, jump onto the screen, right, and realize that there is a relationship there, right, that just begins to mirror the power differential between us and God, right? There's obviously a difference in relationship there, but there is still an equality of love that we are loving the dog and the dog is loving us, right? We are entering into that relationship and we don't enter into that relationship to dominate the dog. We enter into that relationship to love the dog. And even though there are some, um, some barriers that have to be placed there to have proper relationship, those are things that help the dog to function better with us and beside us, just like their codes of conduct. But there's an excellent episode of a podcast called Bare Feet to Emmaus, and I hope to have them on sometime soon. They they look at BDSM and compare BDSM theology to what's going on in the story. And the story, and, and in that context, are specifically talking about as submission and domination as optional things that they enter into, where Yes, someone is giving submission, but they're doing so with the knowledge that the other person is also making a series of agreements to protect them in that scenario. And so it is a, um, it is a consensual relationship that goes back and forth rather than one of power and domination alone. You've hit on something here that is something I come back to on my own podcast all the time, which is the main theme of the Bible is consent. Like, this is something we cannot in any way, shape, or form get around, is setting aside for a moment the fact that we talk about patriarchy and such being present here, largely because of the kind of what I call the literary layers to it. Like, this is, we're reading this in English, which was translated from ancient Hebrew, which was translated from Proto-Hebraic, which was translated from a couple of previous ones, which was written down from oral histories and goes back God knows how far. All of that aside, like in, in every one of those steps, the context of the time was layered onto it. So we're digging through multiple layers of context in which patriarchy has been a pretty constant presence. Setting that aside, the actual thematic arc of what's underlying here is God says, don't do it. Humans do it. Uh, human says, don't do it. Other human does it. And in every case, bad results. The theme we keep coming back to again and again and again is that consent is important. And by the way, every time that we discuss something that has to do with sexuality, that's the theme. By the way, whether you're talking about uh, Onan, for example, which, oh my God, the arguments I've had about that guy, everything has to do with consent. Nobody cares who you like to do what with what. Uh, for the most part, but we do care if consent is a factor. And everything about God's interaction with humankind, sexually or otherwise, boils down to the issue of consent. The idea of original sin, which we'll talk about in Genesis chapter 3, is a violation of consent. Consent, 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 continue. Absolutely. Snorkel? What I was just going to say is that the only defining factor here for the creation of Eve is that 
she, for lack of a better pronoun, is, like we talked about before, completing the other human. It's one person by themselves is not complete. Another person that fills all the roles they can't on their own makes them complete. No one person, um, there's a, you know, the the saying, no man is an island. No one is an island. You can't exist on your own. And you need other humans to complete you. I feel like that is the main point of Genesis 2. It's not who's better, who is supposed to be subservient. It's the principle of completion, where you need all the elements together to create a whole. And it doesn't matter which party uh, embodies which part of the whole it's that the whole is represented entirely and i so brought this up too by saying that the only thing that wasn't good in creation was that the human was alone that they needed their counterpart and the roles of each human in the partnership it was corrupted by the idea that that one is greater than the other more important than the other more dominant than the other yeah, absolutely. We see that this in this original story that humanity are created equal, that we are not placed below God, we're placed equal with creation. And, you know, whereas that first creation story does establish humanity at the top, in this second story that will extend into chapter three, humanity is equal with everything else. We are part of the environment that we live in. We are part of the world that we live in, not to dominate it, but to coexist and to co-create within it. And I think that that is really just a, a beautiful thought that we're going to leave on because we're going to have these exact amazing folks back to talk about Genesis 3, what is traditionally called the fall and what I would rather call the departure from God's ideal. Thank you, Don, Soul, and Snorkel for joining us and for you, wonderful listener, for tuning in. If you're interested in discussing this episode, religion, or general leftism, please join our Discord channel found in the show notes. We host a Bible study every Friday at 12-ish p.m. Eastern Time to discuss this week's episode. If you're interested in supporting the show, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash the word in black and red. Your support helps me pay our amazing editor and relieves my guilty conscience of exploiting someone's free labor. If you would like to appear on the show or reach us for any reason, you can reach us at the word in black and red at gmail.com. Now, future Micah, say the profound shit. You, dear listener, are called to cling in loving relationship with others. Let's go create the community that will work together to create the world that God envisions for us. Shalom. Shalom.